0: Hello and welcome to this podcast on the National Party's economic policy looking ahead to the next election. I'm Eric Frickberg and this is being done for readers of Good Returns and the Mortgage Magazine online and anyone else who's interested. I'm joined now by Nicola Willis who's the Deputy Leader of the National Party and the National Party Spokesperson on Finance.
1: Good afternoon.
0: Nicola, there's still some time to go before you write a detailed manifesto for the next election, but it seems certain that interest rate deductibility on rental prom- uh, rental properties will definitely make the cut. Am I right about that?
1: That's right. We're committed to reversing Labor's tenant taxes, which were both the removal of interest deductibility for rental properties and the extension of the bright line test from two to ten years. So
0: why is that? Why are you well, so certain about that? Well, we
1: believe that those taxes have really had little impact except for adding to costs for tenants. Uh, And being advised on those policies, Labor was warned by their own officials that the risk they ran was that they would add to rental prices and put more pressure on both the State House waiting list and the number of people needing emergency housing. That has transpired. Uh, Rents, on average, have gone up $40 a week since the changes were introduced. Uh, and what we've seen is record numbers of people now on the state house waiting list, up at 27,000, and thousands of people living in emergency accommodation. We have consistently said in national that we share concern about the housing market. The solution is to get on and build more houses. You can't tax your way to more homes.
0: A related issue is ring fencing of losses on rental properties against the tax obligations of people from their day job. Is that something that's that's come across your desk at all that you've taken a look at? And if so, what might you do about it?
1: Well, it's not something that we've committed to revisiting, I'm aware that it is something that people often point to as a challenge uh, as, as landlords or as property owners. Uh, But our first commitment is to reversing those interest deductibility changes and getting the bright line test back to two years.
0: So that is a possibility but not certain at this point? It's not
1: something that's part of our policy commitments at the moment.
0: Now Nicola, the government has said that it will not bring in a capital gains tax basically because it's politically too hard. What's your policy on that and what's your rationale?
1: Well we've always said about a capital gains tax, what is the problem you're trying to solve? Because if the problem Uh, is is the affordability of housing. There isn't actually a straight line between imposing a capital gains tax and suddenly getting more affordable housing. Again, as I said earlier, the way to achieve more affordable housing is to free up uh, the building of homes and to ensure we have a better supply of property. So we don't think A CGT solves that and then we think it potentially creates all sorts of other pernicious issues whereby it can put people off investment, it can put people off uh, making those capital investments and we're not uh, of the view that imposing more taxes is a way to the economic growth we want to see.
0: So the government view that uh, a lot of investors have got an awful lot of money from capital gain and they're not paying tax on it but ordinary workers are and that's unfair. You don't accept that argument?
1: Well, the challenge comes with that argument, that if we look at where people have made gains on assets in recent years, the place you'd instantly point to would be the housing market. Now, most people's housing asset is their home, is their family home. So then you have to say, well, are we going to impose a capital gains tax on every family home, Uh, and if so, what would the impact of that be? And we're just not convinced that that will solve the problems that people have identified. We would agree that there are significant housing affordability issues in New Zealand, but we're not convinced that a capital gains tax is the solution.
0: The Bright Line Test is a kind of capital gains tax in drag. Are you dead set on getting rid of it entirely or will you bring it back to the two years that you guys originally had?
1: Bring it back to the two-year rule. Obviously National introduced that rule. It was a way of Uh, preventing people from flicking properties uh, purely for capital gain. We think two years was about right. Uh, And as you identify, extending it to 10 years is really a capital gains tax by stealth.
0: Okay. uh, one drawback to it is that people who, say, have to go and work in Sydney for a year Mm -hmm. and then they rent out their property, they come back and they're caught. Mm -hmm. Would that not apply even if it's a two-year rule?
1: Well, I I think the thing with the two-year rule is that you're less likely to get captured by it because actually you only have to have occupied it for two years. Over a 10-year period, so many changes can happen, You know, whether it's the parents who move city uh, in order to support their child through medical treatment, whether it's people being seconded to another city for work or even for duties with the army. So we've seen all sorts of issues with the extension to 10 years. It just multiplies and extends the problems that you might see in a two-year period.
0: Nicola, getting on to another topic, the Credit Contract and Consumer Finance Act, or triple CFA. The
1: dreaded triple CFA. Well, I was going to say, it's one that
0: many (laughs) in the finance sector would happily award a Razzie to for worst law of the year. Mm. What, if anything, will you do about it?
1: Well, what we've seen with the triple CFA was actually national joined Labour in supporting the intent of that legislation which was we don't want loan sharks preying on vulnerable borrowers, we want to make sure that people aren't put in difficult positions with lending. But what Labour did was they took the regulation a, a big step further than perhaps we'd envisaged with the original legislation, and that regulation was highly prescriptive about the steps that banks have to go through before they do lending. Uh, and we don't think that's appropriate. Banks are by their nature and experience experts in this. They've done it for decades, if not hundreds of years, uh, and it's not in their interests to lend to people who can't repay. So what we've proposed is that there should be a differential in the regulatory regimes where those commercial banks who are governed by the Reserve Bank's prudential frameworks uh, should have a far less prescriptive regulatory regime when it comes to consumer credit and finance than your second-tier lenders.
0: So you, so you wouldn't scrap the law; you'd just change it a lot.
1: We think change it a lot. A lot of the problems with the law are in the regulations. Uh, So of course that doesn't require legislation to change, that's something that a minister should sit down uh, and do very early in their tenure, working with the banks to get the sand out of the engine. You know That's how the banks have described it to me. We had a well-oiled lending machine and the government threw a handful of sand in it and it's got really gummed up.
0: Some of the sand might have been taken out, the government did some reforms, for example it uh, removed the requirement that banks look at how many cups of latte you've been paying for. <laughs> yeah. Is that not enough? Is well, that... that's
1: a welcome change, but the way I've had it described to me by people who are experts in the banking sector is that once the handful of sand was thrown, the government then clawed a few grains back, but there's still a lot coming up the engine. And I think this is an area where we should be regulating for outcome, i.e., we want good lending, but not doing it in a highly prescriptive way. The impact on first home buyers in particular has been pretty devastating. Uh, a number of people have been precluded from borrowing who otherwise the banks would have wished to lend to. So I think that's a real worry and something we need to correct.
0: Right. In a report on that law, the Council of Financial Regulators suggested that the government might apply the affordability rules mm. to people, quote, with a low credit score with a history of bankruptcies or who are unknown to the lender. Mm. Now, what does it say about the quality of lawmaking here if some highly skilled professionals are paying a lot of money, are paid a lot of money to state the obvious, don't lend to someone you don't know? Yeah. That seems surreal.
1: <laughs> yeah, well, well, it does. And I think what the whole episode with the triple CFA has shown is that as a degree of distrust between officials advising our regulatory agencies and those representing uh, some of the commercial banks and the commercial interests. Because to the bank's credit, they did raise red flags throughout the process, but there seemed to be a disconnect between them raising these genuine concerns and officials picking those up and responding to them. I think that's troubling and what it points to me is the need for genuine industry expertise within uh, our advisors when we're taking policy advice on these issues.
0: Okay. Another law, the Conduct of Financial Institutions Amendment Act, or COFI, mm. now that put a lot of obligations on banks, on insurance companies, on non-bank lenders, and things like that. Mm. It was criticised in Parliament by some of your MPs, such as Simon Watts and Andrew Bailey. Mm. It was reinventing the wheel, and it was a solution looking for a problem. Mm. Is that something that you've taken much of a look at in terms of reforming it in some way? And if so, what might you do? Look,
1: well, the starting position for us is that we do expect good conduct from financial institutions and we recognise the importance of that. But the discussions I've had with financial institutions um, in the months since I became our finance spokesperson, an enduring theme is that a lot of their time, resource and effort is not going into innovation to create new consumer products to provide better services, but is instead going towards meeting the wall of regulation coming towards them. And sometimes they can't quite see how that wall of regulation is benefiting the end consumer. So our view on the Kofi, uh, as it's um, named, uh, was, look, what is this precise problem that it's trying to solve? Uh, And it it was never articulated, we don't think, very clearly. And so, yes, as you you say, we opposed that legislation because we weren't sure that the new regime would be uh, fit for practice. And I guess the precedent for that is the triple CFA, where we did see that uh, a vague idea of uh, lifting standards actually resulted in a lot of gumming up of the, the system.
0: But it sounds like you're not quite as adamant with that, with Kofi as with the triple CFA. Well,
1: what I'm conscious of is that it's another one where the law is one thing, but the actual regulatory implementation will be the critical piece. And as you'll be aware, that's not set to be complete until 2025. So if there was a change of government, as we would love there to be, uh, we would have to look at how we could approach that in a way that would, yes, get the outcomes we want, but not be so prescriptive as to um, gum up our financial institutions.
0: Okay, one last technical question and a couple of general ones. Mm -hmm. On the technical question, we risk having a loss of some financial insurance and mortgage advisors from a law called the EFSLA law, which is the Financial Services Legislation Amendment Act. Mm. Now, that puts a lot of requirements on advisors in terms of having things like cyber security, business interruption plans, and things like that. Mm. Now, the FMA insists this is not hard to do but hundreds of people are not doing it anyway. So the Mm. industry could be almost denuded of people or at Mm. least be reduced about half its current number unless something dramatic changes. Is that something Um, that you have um, any concerns about or any thoughts you might uh, do something on it?
1: Well it's something that's raised with me periodically that people point to the fact that regulation uh, in in that area and the costs involved in meeting those regulatory standards does preclude the range of people uh, from being involved that have historically been involved. And I think the balance that we need to strike here is I do think it's appropriate that there are rules and requirements for people offering financial advice because New Zealanders put their lives and livelihoods into their hands. But having a look at whether or not we're currently striking the right balance, whether those requirements are too onerous, uh, is something that we are doing as a party and it is something that our MPs are engaging on.
0: And finally, the Reserve Bank's multiple targets and tax levels, the RBNZ first. What's wrong or what's right with their multiple targets?
1: Well, National thinks that the multiple targets uh, is a failed experiment. Uh, We had uh, 30 years of consistent uh, monetary policy framework in which the bank had a sole mandate of ensuring price stability and keeping uh, consumer price inflation uh, in a window. Uh, And then Labor came in and added employment to that mandate. We think that can only confuse things uh, and that can only add complexity. It's very clear to New Zealanders, I think, today living uh, with 7.3% inflation that having the Reserve Bank solely focused on price stability uh, pays its own rewards. Now, that's not to say that employment isn't an important government target and we want to see uh, high levels of employment, but we view that as a matter of fiscal and government policy, not something for the Reserve Bank to be focused on.
0: So you could do something about unemployment easier If you've got a stable currency. Absolutely.
1: If you have a stable economy with low inflation, that creates the conditions for growth, investment and for firms to employ people. But keeping that singular focus on inflation is really important for everyone living in a cost of living crisis today. Every time they go to fill up their tank or fill up the trolley at the supermarket, they know just how crippling inflation is.
0: And finally, tax levels, you're adamant a bit of controversy recently, but what you said before is what will happen.
1: Yes, um, this comes from a principle of fairness. We've proposed uh, indexing uh, tax brackets, adjusting them for inflation. And that's because one of the perverse effects of inflation is it pushes people into higher tax brackets so that the government's revenue collection goes up. A lot more and we can see this year the government will collect around 41 billion dollars more in tax revenue than when it came to office and we look at that and we say that balance isn't quite right the tax brackets should be adjusted to allow for that inflation the package we've proposed comes with a price tag of around 1.7 billion you know when you put that next to the 41 billion more in extra re- revenue it pales in comparison.
0: So no 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 butts it'll definitely happen day That one. is a
1: commitment that we have made uh, that in our first term we will provide that tax package at a minimum um, I've made no bones about the fact that if I could provide working New Zealanders with more tax reduction in a way that was fiscally responsible given the fiscal and economic conditions that we see next year then that is something I would strive to do.
0: Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you.